you are listening to Mediation Station, and this is your host, Greg Fenton. Each week, we explore topics and ideas related to the experience of people with conflict and look to promote the profession of conflict resolvers. We are available to connect with at greggf at primus.ca and 647-227-4734. Visit us at our Facebook page to like us and Facebook group page to become a member. Visit YouTube to see both channels of CHHA, 1610 AM, and Greg Fenton. Listen to podcasts of past radio shows at both SoundCloud.com and at iTunes Podcast by searching under Mediation Station in the Arts section. Follow us on our Twitter account, at Fenton Mediation. Our topic tonight is called More Than Skin Deep, Looking into a Deeper Societal Reality. And Nina's here in the studio. How are you doing? Yeah. I'm, I'm good, Greg. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I uh, really appreciate the, you know, people who learn more about you. Obviously, other people know, trying to reach out. How about you start off first by sharing some information out about your professional background? Okay. So, my professional background, I started my profession in 1993 as a recording studio owner engineer. Hey, we got a connection here. We do. That, I, that's why I'm so comfortable in the radio station. Okay. Um, I, I grew up with a love of, of music, especially hip-hop, and um, my both my uncles are master musicians. So throughout my teens, I actually was a dancer and choreographer um, for a rap group in Toronto. We ended up sailing, well, not sailing, <laughs> traveling across to Indonesia and doing some performances there for about a month. And throughout that time, I started growing more and more fond of the music business and wanted to produce my own music. Yeah. Um, because I had difficulty getting into the studio, I said, okay, well, I'll buy my own equipment mm-hmm. and start my own studio. So after I finished high school, um, I got a student venture loan from Royal Bank and got $3,000. Yeah, and I bought myself an ASR10, which is a production sampler. And from there, um, I was working part time, saved money. Mom helped me out with a couple things and purchased a few pieces of equipment. Yeah, this is in the analog days with a four-track cassette recorder and the um, DAT machines. Yeah, for so people to know that digital is somewhat more up to date, right? Yeah, digital yeah. is new. I I learned on actual boards, yeah. manual boards, um, analog system tapes. We were striping yeah. tapes to sync with the MIDI stuff. So that was all. It was all great. But the reason why it's important that those details are there is because not everybody could have a studio in the '90s, and so my studio became one of the first hip hop studios in the city that was a commercial studio, open to the public, and it was in my basement of the house, in my mm-hmm. parents' house in the basement. Um, but then it grew very quickly, and within six years, um, my grandmother helped me out, and we moved the studio out to a public place at mm-hmm. Bernie and Shepherd. Um, and I continued to do work there. Um, throughout my career doing music, I started taking on co-op students, and co-op students from high school. And when I started working with them, I started seeing a lot of social injustice happening. Um, they would share with me their experiences in the street, uh, with police, mm-hmm. with lawyers. And I started saying, wow, I, I always thought, you know, Police are people that you can rely on. Lawyers are people you trust. And I was hearing the opposite. So in 1997, when the city was amalgamating, I got involved in politics. I put my threw my hat in the ring for city council of Scarborough Rouge River, which was Scarborough Malvern at the time. And I thought, you know, uh, if you are honest, if you are presentable, if you can articulate your feelings and reasons, what the community wants to the government, yeah. people would vote for you. 
but then I quickly learned that it was all about money and how much volunteers you had. Um, it wasn't about the words you wrote on the paper or the flyers you delivered. It's, it, it was a real game, political game. Right, okay. So after experiencing that, I said, let me wait until I'm in you know, my upper years where I have some money saved and I can go back at it again. So by the time I hit uh, my mid-30s, so 2009, unfortunately my, my father, who I love dearly, passed away uh, suddenly. Um, he was injured and he had a disability because he was paralyzed one side of his body. So it hit me hard, but what it did teach me is that um, when your parents or when any family give you an opportunity, you should not squander it. And I started looking back and saying, yes, maybe I'm running a successful studio, but I was only breaking even all the time because I was more of a mentorship studio and a community service more than I was a for-profit studio. For profit, yeah. yeah, a lot of the young guys who lived in bad neighborhoods would come to my studio to vent, to stay away from the streets, and I was providing them guidance and, and mentorship. And then I said, you know, after my dad passed, I said, I cannot let him go to his grave without me achieving something notable. And I figured I need to have an education in the sense that a degree so that anything I said people would take a bit more seriously because, you know, I had a little bit of intelligence and I was helpful, but no university degree, so nobody really... So the credibility wasn't there, perceived credibility anyways. That's exactly it, right. Because I was of the notion, you know, you don't have to go to school to be smart and, and you know, the school's not really teaching you much, right. but then I recognized that that piece of paper meant a lot in society. Mm -hmm. So that was my goal. Once my father passed, I said, okay, I'm going to enroll in U of T and get into university. I joined the academic bridging program, so I did one year, one course, and because I was successful at that course, I was admitted full-time as U of T. When I was going through U of T, I started realizing, wait, I'm like 36, 37 years old, everyone else around me is 22, 21, mm -hmm. they're going to get bachelors, I'm going to get a bachelor, and on the job market, how viable am I? Um, I'm getting up there in age, and I said, it doesn't really make sense to get a bachelor. What did you take as an undergrad? I took uh, Near Eastern, Near Middle Eastern Studies, which was for me was really African Studies because I was interested in ancient Egypt, which is Kemet. So I was learning how to read hieroglyphics and, and um, all that stuff. Sure. <laughs> I also took Coptic, um, so I was learning how to read and write Coptic. Um, but my major was Anthropology and Sociology. So I was doing Anthropology, Sociology, and then African Studies. So. It was, it was a wide range. What I found as a mature student, I was in school to actually learn what I had a passion for. I wasn't just trying to get credit so I can get the degree and get out. There was purpose, right? There was definitely purpose. An intention purpose. with... Yes. You were focused. I was focused and I was enjoying it and I was learning so much. And then when I realized I needed uh, something a little more than a bachelor, I reflected on my experience because throughout my studio experience, um, some of my guys would get in trouble. So I would show up at court for them and advocate, you know, this person's good, he helps mm -hmm. in the studio, he's a poet, he's mm -hmm. trying to do something positive with his life. And I started learning the court system. So one of the rappers that I used to record, Louis Dallas, um, he's a, he runs Dallas Criminal Defense right now, he was a teacher and he quit teaching and became a lawyer. And so in 2010, he said to me, Nia, I need help, my practice is growing, you know, you know you're a smart guy, you know the law, you know people, do you want to help? And I said, sure. So what I did, in 2010, I did three things all at once. I was enrolled in university for the first time. Mm -hmm. I was hired as a legal assistant for the first time. And I also threw my hat back in the ring for the 2010 municipal election. So all those things in September happened simultaneously, which was great. But that set my path off again. 
So um, within two years of being at U of T, I applied to um, law school because I said I, I need a I need something more. So a law degree fit perfectly. Louis said, "Hey, if you if you go to law school, I'll help pay for your LSAT prep instead of paying you for music." Because he would come every year, th record three tracks, and pay me money. He said, "Instead of paying you, why don't I just pay for your prep class?" I said, "Hey, that's a good trade-off." So we did that. I su was successful. I got into law school. And then the rest is kind of um, all viewable online because <laughs> all my um, endeavors have been within three weeks of law school. I was on the front page of the Toronto Star because myself and a good friend, Chris Williams, we spoke about our experience through Cardi. We, we mm -hmm. basically spoke about us being 40-year-old males, black males, uh, mm -hmm. with no criminal record, never been charged, never been arrested, but yet we still had data in the police service. And so um, Chris, uh, promote, you know, he urged me to get my Freedom of Information records done. So I did that. And then when I got the 57 pages back, the Toronto Star wrote all about it, shared it with Alok Mukherjee, who was the um, police services chair at the time. And then I became a spokesperson, basically, for explaining what carding was, because nobody understood what it was at the time. Yeah, the go-to person that the media would look for some kind of comment, response context yes yes definitely and i think th the problem was in the past people didn't speak out about it because they were scared if they spoke out about it the police would target them more and um chris and i figured you know what's the harm in speaking about it because we're already targeted we might as well try spread the knowledge and spread the information so people understand what's going on and it actually worked because radio television media they all wanted to hear these explanations mm -hmm. and um, it took a life of its own. I started deputa um, doing deputations at the Police Services Board against the practice. As a law student, I would speak two hats. I would speak as the president of Osgood Society Against Institutional Injustice, a group that I formed with four other um, students in my first year. And we would speak about the legalities against carding, about the principles, arbitrary detention, unreasonable search and seizure, uh, human rights code. And then I would also speak as an individual, as a c Toronto community member and say, this is what happened to me. This is how it made me feel. Yeah. So it was a good way to um, get the practice of carding under the microscope. So what kind of law do you practice? So I practice mainly criminal law, but that's not really what I practice. I, I feel like I practice human rights law. I practice, uh, I, I practice in a way that allows people to feel like justice is being served, or at least someone's advocating for them. So I find through criminal law, there's so many instances of injustice. A lot of people get wrongfully charged, um, caught up in things, mm -hmm. and they don't really seem. They don't really feel like they have someone in their corner. Um, I hear a lot of stories about lawyers who just take their money and then don't really do much work, or lawyers who want them to just plead guilty and so it's quicker. Mm -hmm. And I always look for the best result for my client, and and I always listen to my client and listen to what's going on. Um, there's so many times where at first glance you read the synopsis and you say, oh, wow, this is horrible. Like, look what they did, right? Mm -hmm. But then when you ask a few questions, you start figuring, oh, wait, no, they didn't really do this or it's not the way it's presented. Right. Um, so that's how I approach things. So I end up doing criminal law. I end up doing human rights. I end up doing civil because a lot of these cases involve having to get uh, damages for things that have wrongfully been done. Right. Um, I've touched a few family law cases, but it's something that's very intense. Mm -hmm. um, it's something that requires a lot of paperwork, and I think because my firm is such a high-volume social justice firm, um, there's just not a lot of capacity to do a lot of family. Uh, but I think I just 
you know, I, I practice justice. I, I really, as a lawyer, I became a lawyer not to become rich, um, not to become famous. I became a lawyer because I felt it was the most important tool that a person can have. And for a person like me who was always subject to discrimination or profiling, um, who felt that at any minute the wrong interaction could destroy my life um, with a criminal record or something, just not saying that I did anything, just saying the circumstances. So knowing the law would actually insulate me or at least potentially insulate me from that. So um, knowing the law, that's the reason, but also to better serve the community because I do so much social work and community work, knowing the law will actually help me help others. Right, so your own lived experiences, you've taken that to another level to actually take it to assist others with their lived experiences. Definitely, yes. So do you work with both adults and youth as part of criminal? Yes, um, I have a large contingent of youth. Um, and hello to any of the youth that are listening, if you are, <laughs> um, but also adults. So whoever comes forward, if, if we have the capacity to deal with their case, we'll do it. But I find my connection is really strong with youth because I find the youth usually feel like people don't connect with them or understand them. And I, I think I'm young at heart, and I'm always able to speak the lingo that they understand and talk about hip-hop and how I produced, and, and they, they connect. Yeah, that's the, the thing that resonates, and they feel a connection, and they feel a bond of some form. Oh, yes, yeah. yeah. So how would you define the type of work you do with people? I know you've shared some, but do you have some kind of context that... Uh yeah, well, I would describe it as organic. Um, I would describe it as very human. When you say organic, what do you, what do you mean? It actually, it's, it flows naturally. Um, I find it's not very uh, corporate. Or predetermined? Not predetermined. It's more in the moment type of thing? In, in the moment, yeah. A lot of my clients, I'm finding them, like, as I'm walking through the court ha halls, people look at me and say, oh, sir, can, you just, can I just ask you a question? And then they ask me a question, and I don't give them the quick, fast answer. I give them the detailed answer with enough nuances that will actually help them go forward. And then they really appreciate that. So they say, uh, can, can you assist me with my case? And then I'll, and I'll you know, do a quick review and see if I can or not. But it all happens very naturally. I, I don't advertise. So a lot of the community work I do, um, community workers themselves and community activists refer people to me because they say, you know, I know a guy who does good work. He's honest. He really does his best for his clients. Mm -hmm. You should give him a call. So I get a lot of calls like that. And then... Because I have such a strong base in the music field, um, prior to being a lawyer, a lot of those people that I know call me when they need Yeah, assistance. so word of mouth it gives you a lot of credibility with people. Oh, I mean, yeah. People can put out a message on, a, on an ad somewhere, and you know people have to try to measure in some way for themselves, can I trust this person? Will they do what I need them to do or want them to do? But when people you know, in terms of the uh, word of mouth type of thing, yeah. that's somebody else who's usually gone through something or knows if someone else has and says, hey, I know this guy. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's how it's been working, and it's been working well. So what does it mean to you to do the work you do with people who are basically experiencing what we would call, and when I say we, people in the conflict resolution field is negative conflict. Okay. Um, I think when you're experiencing negative conflict, uh, the last thing you need is to be confused or to be forking over tons of money that you don't understand where it's going. Um, so the type of work I do is really to comfort people. It's really to say, okay, it's not as bad as it seems, or if it is as bad as it seems, show them the, the light at the end of the tunnel. 
say, look, this is what most likely is going to happen, but you can mitigate certain things if this happens this way or if that happens that way. So I'm really trying to make people's lives a bit more comfortable. Um, getting charged with an offense is very stressful or having a legal dispute is very stressful. The courts seem like this big monolith, which is immovable, yeah. but everybody's just a human being at the end of the day. I mean, and I try to take that approach and I try to present that human side of my clients when I'm dealing with crowns or with judges to say, look, um, just because this is on paper doesn't mean this is the person. The person is deeper than that. So that's really how I approach it and, and how I look at the law and life in general. And, and I would think, too, that uh, knowing what I do, which is not much of you, which is enough for me, that I can see that you're an empathic person. You have a sense of responsibility and care for the people that you work with in some form to assist and support. Yes. So I think the messaging and the manner that you message resonates with people because you can have two people say the same thing. They may not say it the same way. And one person may better connect with the person who hears that message. So I think, you know, communication from the point of view that I try to promote is that you, it's not what you, well, it's what you say, it's what you don't say. It's also how you say it, it's also how you don't say it. Right. Yeah. No, I agree with that totally. Yeah. And the, the uh, reference, too, that uh, negative conflict, because when people generally hear conflict, the word, they generally have a sense that it's not a good thing. It's a problem. It's the, the worst thing. We t try and take the view that conflict can actually be a great opportunity where people can intersect and, you know, they're going through a struggle of some form, but if they take steps in a, in a different way than seeing it as a negative, seeing it as an opportunity, so reframing that vision and the process of it, the mindset, it can be a great opportunity to grow and develop from. Yeah. So... That's, that's wise words, Greg, right? wise words. <laughs> well, so how do you try to navigate with people experiencing the conflict? Like, what do you try to do when you first engage with people? Well, I tr really try to let them know that I'm listening and my ears are open and that I'm understanding and that it's not going to be as, as bad as they think it is. Um, so I really try, and I try to explain how the law works because if they start to understand how it works, then they know where their parameters are, um, where they should emphasize their efforts, and where they should probably remove certain efforts. Uh, I, unfortunately, so many people in the, in the criminal justice system, I would say, think the more money you have, the more chance you're going to get off of a charge. Yeah, you can pay a good lawyer a lot of money, but that's still not the case. Um, it really depends on the circumstance of the case and the type of advocate you have. You know, I've worked for free for people and got charges withdrawn. And um, I know of people who've paid a lot of money to lawyers and have had nothing done. So money isn't the real route to success. Um, understanding what you're charged with and why, and then understanding how the law works um, is the most important thing. And I find that my strength is sharing with my clients the process um, because they're usually they're usually unaware and I've, I've heard a lot of them say you know the lawyer hasn't gone over disclosure with me the lawyer hasn't told me anything they just told me sh they tell me show up with money and yeah. then that's that's it right yeah the communication is uh, always not the the best in terms of you know people's understanding of a system could be created especially the justice 
through the media or TV or Hollywood in some form. And the reality is that it's much different. Though when they enter into the system, if they're, they've been charged or they have some kind of paperwork that's in family, for example, people have sort of like this pre-assumed or conceived idea of what the process would be. And so if you can find a way to frame it in a manner that people can... You break it down in a manner, right? Yes, yeah. Definitely break it down. Let them know the steps. Let them know, you know, you're really not going to be needed until trial. Like, everyone thinks they have to show up every day for every court appearance, but really those court appearances are just dates being set. Um, where the real magic happens is behind the closed doors when the defense lawyer and the Crown discuss the case, yeah. see if there can be a resolution, and then when you get the judge involved and everyone's looking at the legalities and, and the evidence and deciding on if a trial is going to go forward or not, that's the important pieces. And then, of course, the trial itself. But all the other court appearances, nothing much happens that the public or the accused can do. Um, it's really up to the lawyers. So once people start to understand, okay, this is going to be you know, a six to year maybe a year mm -hmm. and a half process yeah and better just get used to used to it um just relax and take your time and then go forward that's the best thing for people to know you know having people informed about what to expect will help them to better connect with the moment they're, they're going through to then journey through those moments because you know people build up these um, expectations that many times can't be fulfilled in the manner or timeline that they're expecting. Right. So, you know, giving the big picture context is much more helpful for people to, you know, instead of looking down the road, they're looking in the current moment, and then they can go through it and walk through it in a more, I'm not going to say comfortable, but a better connected way. Right. How is your identity defined? By who is the question? I framed it this way particularly so you have ownership of what that yeah right okay so it's that's a really tough question because mm -hmm. how i would define myself if it was just me in the world without the social constructs and mm -hmm. racism and prejudice we have i would just say a, a human being right uh, a, a philanthropist someone who cares about others someone who enjoys knowledge um and enjoys the higher spirituality in life like i i like astronomy i like science i i like music um so that would be my identity but living in reality mm -hmm. uh, my identity <coughs> i would have to say I, my identity is of a black man right and i don't even like using the term black because that doesn't connotate any nationality or any ethnicity um for me uh, my true identity for me is a, a comedic person someone from the land of africa but africa again is not a um, indigenous term that the people use. So Kemet, it was a land that ancient Egypt is known as. They called it Kemet. So I like to say I'm a person, a Kemetic person. Um, I say all this because I know no matter what status I reach, no matter how well I try to do for others, when I walk into a room, people see a black guy. Mm -hmm. And um, through my seven campaigns for political office, unfortunately, I feel like I've had hindrance because of the color of my skin. Um, people seem to not want to vote uh, for the black guy. Um, even though I've done so much good things in the community, uh, you know, I'm on TV all the time, mm -hmm. I'm promoting anti-violence, I'm promoting cooperation, I'm promoting 
knowledge and um, it seems like preconceived notions take over I have a I have a sad story to tell you um, <coughs> last year my my firm got the contract to deal with suspensions and expulsions in schools so we're very well versed in how to assist people in conflict resolution at the school stage and um, we had a call from a uh, client who needed help and it was connected with my firm and basically we stepped in we called the police we, we started acting for this family um, this young person who was charged and then the day we showed up at court um, we were told by one of the relatives we don't need you anymore and um, you know the staff that was there was like well why what what happened we, we were doing everything we were right you yeah. know and we come to find out that <coughs> it was said by a black person to their son who was black you were not going to have a black lawyer you're going to have a white lawyer I'm not going to pay for a black lawyer okay. and it just made me realize like this person just prevented their son from having probably one of the most um, engaging representations that they can have and someone who actually knew the whole school system and the expulsion system and had experience with it that would give his son the best result but because that person has been so conditioned to believe that non-blacks are either smarter or more successful or have more connections mm -hmm. than blacks do, he basically denied his son um, good representation. That probably could have lasted a lifetime uh, after the relationship would have been formed. So that's the type, type of identity issues that I have to deal with, knowing that when I'm in a courtroom, um, people are looking at me maybe saying, Oh well, he's just the black advocate guy. He just does black issues, which which I don't. I'm I'm a humanist. I care about human beings, and I I just want fairness for all humans. Mm -hmm. It just so happens that my community is suffering, and that my community reaches out to me because they need assistance, and I will always represent anyone who needs it. So, um, it's frustrating knowing that the color of your skin shades people's uh, view of you mm -hmm. it doesn't allow them to see the credentials you have you know I come to think I just ran for mayor in the last election right. and you know I'm 44 years old I raised two children on my own I went to school past the age of 30 as a mature student I ran my own business I was the chair of Carabana um, all of these things I can't help but wonder if it was in a white person's body or a non-black person's body, how that would have translated. People would have said, oh my gosh, look at this new candidate. This person knows things. They know music. They, they know law. They're yeah. connected. Right. But I, I was ignored by the media when I ran for mayor. So it's, it's frustrating thinking that the color of your skin can prevent you from doing things. But at the end of the day, um, I just do the work I think I have to do as a human being. And I'm glad that the commu my community embraces me and says, you know, Thank you for doing all you're doing. And um, I hope all communities can say, as a human being, thank you for doing what you're doing, and I'll always be of service to humans. You, you got right to the cross, uh, crux of when I asked that question the way I did about, yeah, you identify, though really what's the power of others who impose the identity on us? Yes. And from that, that's their lived reality and how they treat us. And, you know deal with us in whatever way you, you know we have ownership of how we identify and I you know self-determination for me is just the, the ideal and from a shared perspective of humanity 
yet, you know, it's not so simple in life, right? As mm-hmm. you've been talking about. Right. People have their own concepts and ideas, and they project it onto others, and that's how they treat other people. Yeah, yeah. So what challenges you about all of this? What challenges me yeah. is that I just know that others who aren't as fortunate as I am, um, who may feel defeated already, who are young, who have received the bad end of racism, well, there's, always a, there's only one bad end of racism, but who feel the discrimination, that they may not come out of it, that they may just relegate themselves to the definitions that others put on them. And I kind of see that with the young people, especially the young males in Toronto. A lot of young males are being suspended and expelled from school, and the police target them. And whether they start out as innocent young people with no criminal record, no criminal intent, the amount of times that teachers say, you know, go to the office, or you're not going to mount anything, or pick a easier course because you won't make it to university. Mm-hmm. And then the amount of times the cops pull you over and say, oh, where are you going? Let me see your pockets. Oh, do you have any drugs on you? Yeah. Do you have a gun on you? And then the amount of times guys that look like them approach them and say, oh, you got a problem? You want to fight? Or, or what's the deal? What yeah. block are you from? All those negative interactions impart an identity upon them. And I feel, unfortunately, they are succumbing to it. And they haven't, unfortunately, don't have the... Um, foundation of self-confidence or knowledge to say i'm not what you say i am i'm not going to act like how you want me to act right. and i'm not going to follow the crowd um, but reality is human beings on mass we adapt to each other's behavior we follow each other's behavior it's just part of being a human being and i'm just concerned that the negative inferences made upon the african canadian community and it also happens to indigenous um, are being lived out and I'm fortunate enough to escape that. Um, I'm fortunate enough to have the wisdom to discern myself from it. I'm a hip-hop fan. I love the music forever. I will listen to the toughest, roughest gangster rap that you ever heard. But I'm never going to be the one to do what they say. I'm listening to it because it's telling me a story. It's either telling me their lived experience or what they've seen. And I know the difference between myself and them. It's not in me to behave like that. Um, I see too many good young people act bad because they think they're supposed to act bad. And um, I want to see that change. So that's part of the reason why I do what I do. But that's the difficulty with the identity issues um, that I see is that we adopt identities that people put on us. Right. That people get labeled. And then they are supposed to or expected to follow a certain pathway. And that message, when it's told as you said, reinforced, it becomes the norm Yes, as to the lived reality. Why do these, from your point of view, why do these perceptions? Because, you know, for, for me, you know, it's not my intention, and I, I obviously don't walk in your shoes, and there's no intention to do so, and I would never do so. Why do these perceptions become societal norms, though, regardless of how unfair and exclusive they are to the diverse reality of society. Lack of understanding. Lack of understanding is the key thing. And if we really want to go deep, since this is uh, yep. deep conversation time. That's right. Um, That's the motto there. Th- why these things persist is because of a, it, there's, there's a human nature aspect, but there's also the political agenda aspect. And I'm going to take it back to the commodification of 
of African people. Um, in the 15th century and 16th century, African people were sought after because they can work under harsh conditions. They were able to build. And what ended up happening is certain nations, when they were taking people, because all nations had slavery or indentured servitude of some way, but just so happened that the Africans seemed to produce and last. So when people were taking them and using them as, as commodities, as chattel, um, certain, certain segments of society said, this is wrong. Why are we doing to these other human beings? Why are we treating them like this? There had to be a justification for it. And what started happening is, oh, well, they're not full human beings. They're three-fifths of a human being. Oh, they're so animalistic. Look at them. You know, they're, they're so strong and they run fast. So they must be animals, right? These type of justifications became the justification for a financial gain throughout Europe and throughout North America. And um, the same thing happened with First Nations and Indigenous people. Oh, they're savages. They don't know. They don't have Christ in their life. They're, they're, you, we can take their land. They're just part of the animal kingdom, right? Um, these negative identity politics and justifications create the justification where society buys in. And that's how slavery lasted so long with the buy-in of other people. Even though uh, Africans were revolting, even though they had anti-slavery societies, um, there's a political justification. We can translate that to today when we look at the crime in the city or we look at the police, how much money we're giving to the police. And I'll, I'll say this. Um, we always talk about gangs, gangs, gangs. Toronto, we got so much gangs, all these gang shootings. <clears throat> Very rarely do they ever mention a gang. And it's the identity politics that are being thrust upon society and labeling young people and black kids as gang members when they're really young individuals who've made potentially a wrong decision and involved their lives in crime. Their neighborhood might have to do something to do with it, their poverty might have something to do with it, or they're just bad people. Sometimes bad people exist, right? Mm -hmm. But it's not the identity that we keep imparting. And when you get the identity wrong, basically the police are trying to justify, or the society is trying to justify the increase in budget, the increase in laws, they're using, um, they're labeling people in certain ways to justify. And that's what we're talking about. You're asking why does the, do these identities perpetuate? It's because other people gain from them perpetuating. It's not because they have any truth to it. Um, young people of all races and religions and colors act up. Young kids act bad all the time. But I find that as a lawyer, when I'm looking at the court cases, when a young black kid does something versus a young white kid, um, the young white kid gets off. They get the break. They get the benefit of the doubt. The black kid's like, oh, yeah, they need to be locked up. They need to be penalized. And that is something that's just always happening that we have to undo. And the more that people are around others that are different is the better they understand and they realize not everyone's the same. And I'll use this as an example. People who are racist and, and are prejudiced, um, they say, oh, all those blacks or all those Chinese or all whoever, those Indians do this. But they never stop to think about their family. Does everyone in their family act the same way? No. We all know. All we, we can look at our families and say, yeah, my son's this way, my cousin's this way, my mom's this way, my dad's this way. Everybody's different because everyone has their own personality. Right. They have to view other races the same way. Each individual is different. You cannot group a whole race or a culture into one. You just, you know, 
it's like there's no intention, there's no purpose by the broader community to have an interest to make profound or real change. To perpetuate the same is an opportunity to create policy that favors the majority. Yes. Like, how are you affected by uh, all this that's happening, the attitudes and the behavior of others like this? It's, it has a detrimental effect because all the energy I could be putting towards advancing my own interests or other human beings' interests are caught up with combating the negative um, connotations or negative disbursements against myself and others. So I find myself undoing a lot. And even as a lawyer, um, my time is not spent where it should be because I'm always you know, calling the police and begging them to not hold someone who shouldn't be held. And then I have to show up at bail on a Saturday because the cops were not using their discretion to yeah. let a 17-year-old go for something that happened two weeks ago, which is not even fully provable, right? So it's these type of things where, excuse me, these negative behaviors create more work yeah. for people like Unnecessary work. Unnecessary. Though it's necessary because you're there to help represent your client. Yes. And if you could focus all that energy in doing that, ideal. Though you have to fight the system. That's that's it. you said it exactly. I'm, I'm spending too much much time fighting the system rather than the issue at hand, and I really want to use my energy for more good rather than undoing other bad people's behavior. Okay, so I'm gonna put the caller on now. Sure. Hi, how are you? I'm well. Yourself? I'm fine. Thanks for calling. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. What would you like to do? Um, just a relatively quick question. <laughs> I'm wondering if one of the greatest challenges we have, each of us, is to step out of our own comfort zone long enough to experience or at least appreciate someone else's lived experiences. Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. Um, so many people are comfortable in their own skin, and when they hear the stories that sound so horrific, it's so mind-boggling to them, they don't believe it exists. And I've been around quite a few people who are good people who I get along with who are just in denial that things like this happen every day to people, innocent people. And um, you're right, the comfort zone is an issue. Um, I think when you have a friend that experiences it, you get closer to it. But maybe some, a lot of good people don't have friends like that to who mm -hmm. they can share those experiences with. Thank you. You want to say anything else? Before? Um. No, that was it. That was nice and comprehensive. It, I, I suspect the greatest challenge any of us have. I always tell people, if at all possible, take a walk in someone else's shoes. It's only, you know, a half step to get a better sense of someone else's perspective. And that's, I'm, I'm guessing that's something we all have to take on at, at some point in our lives. Well, you know what, sir? You know what I do and I find is very effective? Whenever I'm dealing with someone, an angry person, a happy person or anything, I always try to put myself in their shoes to say, where are they coming from? What was their experience in their life? Maybe they're angry today, or maybe they're short with me today because something bad happened to them this morning. And yeah. I, I try not to react to them and understand it's probably beyond what they're experiencing at that moment. So I think that's, it's like consideration. Um, walking in someone else's shoes, the, the quickest way we can do it is just be considerate of others. And mm -hmm. I'm glad you raised that point. And in addition, I would also say the empathy that you have as a foundation as part of who you are yes that's the that's the intention to try to connect with others 
from their perspective in some way. Yeah, and I always thought everybody was empathetic, but I'm starting to realize there's few or, or not as many as I thought in the beginning. Right. It's a learned skill. Right. Yep. Thanks for calling in. Appreciate Excellent. it. Thank you. All right. So, Nia, um, what do you say to someone who is or has been treated in the way that we have discussed? Just to remind them that whoever treated them that way doesn't know any better. And most likely doesn't know any better. And not to take it personal, not to, to take it to heart, but to understand that other people have issues and that's why they mistreat others. Um, and to, I don't want to say take the high road, but it really is. Take the high road. Uh, be dignified. Always be respectful. Try to hold your composure because when you snap or when you break, then they've succeeded in breaking you. Like you react rather than respond. There you go. In some yeah. way. Yeah. And I think split-second decisions or in the moment, um, choosing to walk away is way better than choosing to, to stay and fight sometimes. And um, we can always just try to use that rationale in our mind and that second voice that says, okay, don't do it or, or think before you speak. So what can you suggest for people who have some kind of apprehension from their lived experiences regarding how they are seen and treated, their identity that's imposed on them, not necessarily how they identify themselves as to what you know we've been talking about. Well, I think people should always remember it's not always as bad as they think, too. Sometimes we walk into a place and we think people are staring at us, but they're not really, or they're judging us and they're not really. So we have to be careful of our own mind um, telling us things that aren't there. And people who have experienced um, racism or mistreatment based on who they are should always try their best to, to see it from another perspective. Like, don't think that everything you do is being looked at or monitored. And, and even if it is, I always use this example, they're not going to go home thinking about you, right? If you're in the grocery store at the line and you drop an egg on the floor... You don't have to cower. You don't have to worry about it that much because all those people in line who may have seen it, they're not going to go home and say, oh my God, that guy dropped an egg on the floor. Right? Same thing as if you're doing a speech and you stumble over a word. Mm -hmm. um, no one's going to say, oh my God, that speech was awful because he stumbled over a word. They're going to be looking at the person and the content and what they represent. There's, there's more to it than small individual incidents. It's the total package. So people got to realize that um, if something bad happens today, it's not the end of the world. And they have to know that there's bigger things out there. There's more things to do. And there's always a chance to redeem yourself. There's always a chance to do better. There's always a chance to apologize. There's always a chance for someone to apologize to you. So don't ever think it's all over just because something happened that one time. So what do you want people to take or learn from our conversation tonight? That uh, the little things count and that good people still exist because uh, I, I see you as a good person who's taken the time to have a show like this that just explores deeper understanding and allows people time to talk. You've asked me to come in to share my experience and I'm grateful for it. Um, hopefully more people can be touched. Like I'm glad that one caller called in because it shows that people are listening and, and the words we're saying to each other are impacting others. So I want people to understand everything they say and do makes a difference. Um, I'm in rooms too many times where something's happening and everyone stands quiet and looks around. You know, and then I got to be the first person to either do something or ask the question. 
um, don't wait for other people to do the right thing you can do the right thing too and like I said holding a door open for somebody um, going back to pick up something that someone dropped little things count and I think that's what make the world go round so we have to focus on the little things because I think right now we're all focused on the big things yeah. and we're missing the humanity in everyday life you know it's the, it, for me it's like the little things that matter most in some way that makes a difference for me in terms of others well, for, to, sure. for others too for sure and if you look at any piece of quality clothing or electronics or anything we enjoy in life it's the fine details that separate that from the mass produced things so yeah sure we can all drive a car or watch a TV or eat at a table but when that extra time is taken to do certain things um, it makes a difference in, into your enjoyment so just remember that's the same thing with relationships it's not just material things just an extra word a hug and I love you I miss you or thank you yeah. goes a long way yeah and walk your own walk like yeah. people have a, a mindset don't get caught up in the agendas of other people because it's not always with the best of intentions right so thanks very much for coming out tonight and uh, sharing. And uh, I look forward to having you return and exploring something else. Thank you. The time flew. <laughs> you, you, yeah, that's what generally happens. So you have a good conversation, and it's what happened. Okay, we're at the end of the show now. All right. Thanks very much. Thank you. You've been listening to Mediation Station on CHHA, 1610 AM.